Welcome back to the Prayerfully Woke Podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. My name is Walker, and in this podcast episode, I am joined by my good friend Jonathan and Dr. Pete Enns. Dr. Pete Enns uh, teaches Bible at Eastern University, but he's also the author of several amazing books, namely How the Bible Actually Works, The Bible Tells Me So, and The Sin of Certainty. These books are amazing. I suggest that you all go check them out online. On top of that, Dr. Pete Enns is the co-host of the amazing Bible from Normal People podcast, which we will link in the description down below for all of you to go and check out and listen to. In this interview, we talk about all things related to the Bible, uh, all things related to fundamentalism and kind of how we read the Bible and all that good stuff. But I'm going to let the episode speak for itself. Without further ado, let's jump right in to this episode with Dr. Pete Enns. Yo, this is Walker McCowan, and I'm Jonathan Garlock, and we are Prayerfully Woke. All right, prayerfully woke listeners, we are so excited for today's conversation. Uh, we have a man that has been uh, really influential in my life for the last, um, I don't know, maybe six months or a year, and I've listened to every single episode, uh, that uh, podcast episode that he has put out. Um, we have with us the co-host of The Bible for Normal People, Dr. P. And just with us. How are you today, Pete? Doing great. You forgot marmalade too. She's in my face as we speak. Little little furry marmalade is yeah. It's really the star of the show right now. No, we talked about this before we pressed record, but this cat senses my weakness when I'm on a call. She just needs to be in the center of attention. You done, cat? Can you move? Maybe you're right. Fine. Anyway, we'll be fine. I'm used to this. She almost I a doctoral dissertation with my one-year-old daughter hanging on my back. I can handle a cat in my face when I'm talking. So yes, well, we we promise that no no deep intellectual questions will come from us. That that's something we can promise here at Prayerfully Woke. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> uh, for sure, Pete. Can you uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, tell tell us what you're up to nowadays and what's going on in your life. Sure, yeah. I, I actually teach uh, full-time at Eastern University, which is outside of Philadelphia, and uh, people may have heard of Tony Campolo. He um, has been teaching there for a long time. He's still sort of active. He's like 80. Um, and also, people may have heard of Brian Stevenson, who's uh, the uh, racial reconciliation warrior, I guess, uh, and who wrote Just Mercy. So there are two people that are pretty much known in that school. But I've been there for a few years, and uh, like you said, I also co-host a podcast, and I do some writing, and I sort of cobble all those things together, and that takes up the hours of my day. That's awesome. Can, yeah. I've never I've never heard you talk about this. What is your religious background? Oh, well, it's sort of all over the place. I was sort of raised Lutheran by my parents because they were German immigrants, and I had a conversion experience in high school in a Nazarene church. And then I did a Presbyterian thing for a good many years. And I've been attending an Episcopal church for, well, for almost 10 years now. You know? Okay. So, so it's just, you know, all over the place, reflecting right. where I was at the moment. So, Very good. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Uh, so, Dr. P, you have um, 
written several books, um, but the one that I love the most was how the Bible actually works, and that's what mm-hmm. we kind of want to get into in this po- in this podcast conversation okay. today is to dive in a little bit into how we view the Bible. Um, last week, Jonathan and I recorded a podcast about what do we have to believe to be Christian, right? And and we talked about the Apostles' Creed and about the basic tenets of faith, like like you know this is what the creed says, you know, and and kind of what are the non-negotiables of Christianity, that kind of stuff, right? But it doesn't say anything about the Bible in the creed, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of beliefs that people have about the Bible that aren't necessarily you know things that we necessarily have to believe about the Bible. Uh, such as inerrancy or that it's, you know, um, perfect in every single letter. And, you know, all these kind of these cliche phrases that we hear all the time. My simple question to you, though, is this is, is kind of when someone is approaching the Bible, when someone's reading scripture, what is the Bible? Like in, in, in its most basic form, like what can you answer for us? What is the Bible? <laughs> yeah, and I like the way you preface that with uh, just a simple question. Yeah, exactly. Uh, every time I hear that, I know a simple question is not going to be anywhere near what this question is. So um, I, I think, first of all, the way you put it about the whole, the creeds and all that business, I think that's true. We have to remember that. And even with the creeds, Christians can doubt those things, which they do, and they struggle with some of that stuff. So I think, you know, what Christians generally have believed, that's true. But I think there's also room for people to just say, I'm just struggling with X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you're less Christian. All right. So and that's especially true with the Bible. You know, what is it is a question that I keep thinking about. And, you know, I, I can't sort of boil it down to a tweet. But I would say, you know, at this stage of my life, the way I've been, where my thinking has been going, is that on one level, the Bible is sort of like a non-negotiable uh, partner of the Christian faith. It's not going anywhere. And it's something we keep coming back to as not just a source of information, but sometimes a source of um, inspiration and also a little bit of need to dialogue with it and even debate with it. So it performs all those functions. And I think, you know, whatever we think about the Bible as, you know, coming from God or revealed or inspired, all of which are fine words to use, I think what we're seeing in the Bible really is a a reflection on the part of the people who wrote it who are articulating their own faith in God at particular points in time. And that changes, even within the Bible. That's, you know, one of the themes of the book, how the Bible actually works, is that you have shifts in thinking over time depending on the circumstances. And I think that's part of the character of the Bible that we need to honor, just allowing that to happen. So, it is, it is, I would say, human reflection on spiritual realities, which is something that at the end of the day has been used by the Spirit to bring people along to sort of think about these things for themselves. And you would think that as Christians we would be okay with that. You'd think so, the, wouldn't you? The biggest, the biggest shift was Jesus, right? Yeah, it was a big shift. I mean, Jesus liked his Bible, you know, and, and, you know, and there was nothing like, there's no, there's no, like, Jesus or Bible thing, but um, if if you know anything about the Bible from having read it, and and you know, and not I mean like forever, I I mean just just taking it seriously enough to read it, you know that the Bible also raises a lot of questions, and it's not always that clear, and um, you know the 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 Bible is not it's it's not the um, it's not the means to God. 
I, I think a relationship with God is the means to God and recognizing God's presence and and that's where Jesus comes in, I think, you know. So, um, you know, I just, it's not, that, that may sound to some people listening like, you know, I'm not really big on the Bible. No, I spent my life reading it and teaching it and writing it. I love the Bible. But it's not the, um, it's not like a constitution or a rule book that sort of lays it all out and that's all you got to do. You know, it actually creates and generates questions more than it answers some of them. And I think the history of Christian thought bears witness to that fact that there's always been debate and discussion and lack of clarity. And that's just the way it is. Very good. I appreciate that answer. Kind of follow up on that. Uh, I assume that you deal with people every day that have preconceived notions about the Bible. Um, what are some common mistakes that modern readers, uh, that you see modern readers uh, use when they are looking at scripture? Uh, what are some things that kind of lead people astray that you, in your experience? When you say modern readers, do you mean like people who are Christian or married? Yeah, Christian? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 yeah, I guess the assumption that, okay, here's the Bible. It's God's word, which means God functionally wrote it. Yeah. Inspired. He inspired it, but he inspired them to say exactly what he wanted to say. Okay, therefore, the Bible is is basically, like you were saying before, Walker, perfect. You know, and, and I think that's an assumption that we make um, – about the Bible based on what we think God is doing with the Bible, right? So that, that is, it's a preconceived notion to sort of start, like, up here and say, this is what God's like, therefore the Bible must be way. That's a preconceived notion. I'd rather look at the Bible and start there almost and say, okay, from the point of view of faith, what does this tell me about the nature of faith or what God is like? Or, I mean, very importantly, how the Bible sort of models what it means to struggle with what it means to believe in God. Yeah. You know, because there, there are these differences there that these tensions are beautiful tensions. And I think the preconceived notion that you sort of come at it as a like a flawless rule book of some sort that just simply tells you what you need to know and you just need to not question and just do it. Um, that That's a pretty big preconceived notion that that many people have, including, you know, my students, not all of them, but some of them certainly have that. And I, I don't blame them. I, get, I know where it comes from. Yes, they're not bad people for having it. It's just it's just something that that works. And forgive me until you start reading the Bible carefully, and then you realize, yeah, gee, I wish, boy, this is. <laughs> there are moral difficulties in the Bible. There are differences of opinion. You know, there are two histories of Israel in the Old Testament that don't align very well. There are four Gospels that have clear differences of of of, of, of opinion about who Jesus was and what he did. Those are that those are characteristics of the Bible. And a preconceived notion that can't handle those characteristics is a bad preconceived notion. Yeah, so I grew I grew I appreciate your answer so much because I grew up in fundamentalist circles where if if the Bible gets this one thing wrong, usually it was about creation or something. Right. If if the Bible's wrong about this, then it's wrong about everything and we might as well throw the whole thing out. Right. So right. I guess my follow up question is are have you found a way to help people like me? <laughs> Have you found a way to help your students? Sadly, no. Sadly, no. You're on There's your own. No hope. I okay, thank you. I'm terminal. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, the thing is, um, again, that, that begins with the preconceived notion that the Bible is like a Jenga tower. You pull out one or two wrong things and the whole thing topples down. Um, and that, that's, that's an assumption that has to be challenged. And that's the only way to help people is to challenge that assumption by reading the Bible and saying it really doesn't work that way, you know. 
And and then also, you know, things like, you know, if the Bible is wrong about anything, and they usually go to creation. See, this is, there are subtleties here that have to be discussed that not everybody is always going to have patience for, right? If, If it's black and white, you don't have patience for the subtle discussions. But the whole question is, what is Genesis 1 doing? What is its purpose? What is its genre? Why was it written? On what basis do we assume it should conform to modern notions of science? On what basis should we think that's even something that's relevant for understanding science? Those are all real preconceived ideas that have to be dug into. And once we let go of, of some of those preconceived notions that are simply unworkable at the end of the day, you can have a different kind of discussion. And you can look and see, you know, Genesis chapter 1, for example, it's not history. It's an ancient Near Eastern cosmology. They're, they're using categories that other ancient peoples use too. And it's not scientific remotely. Well, then it's wrong. I, I didn't say it was wrong. I said it's not scientific remotely. See, we can't equate those two things. That's the problem. We equate, well, it doesn't think scientifically or historically the, the way we might think of those things. And if it's not that, then the Bible's wrong. Therefore, it can't be that. It's got to be something. And, and you start getting wound up in this, this argument that's just very, very hard to win inside yourself. You know, the Bible is ancient literature. It's the Word of God. I didn't say it wasn't. I'm saying it's ancient literature, though. And, yeah. and that's the struggle, I think, for all modern people. And, and not just modern people, but people who lived any time after the Bible was completed. It's about something in the past, and now you're always going to have to ask, okay, how does this connect with me today? And in the modern period, we have particular problems because we're living in an age of science and and all sorts of things that just make it more difficult to um, to bridge that gap quickly. And it, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of thought. Awesome. I love all of all that. Um, he'll say he loves his, your, he'll say he loves your answers all day. That's what he says. OK, that's why he's here. <laughs> no, that's I do. I do. Hi, hype man. He's the cheerleader. I'm the he's <laughs> hype man. Lead the PN's uh, fan club. No, but um, you know, I need it. Trust me. You need just, it. We probably have a bunch of hate clubs with like all the fundamentalists you make mad. You know. I probably do. You know. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's no, always but, a lead button on social media too, so I don't have to listen. Oh to yeah. yeah. Um. So you had mentioned earlier, um, you know how how the Bible is people that are reckoning with faith in God and and how to process all this in their time frame, and what I love how you talk about in um, how the Bible actually works is this change that goes on. You give specific examples. I'm not going to ask you to give those now. People need to go buy your book to go um, and put more money in your pocket, but also <laughs> yeah, more I don't knowledge care if you in your read head. It, just they have to go buy it. That's all I care about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they don't have to read it, but uh, go buy it. But anyways, but can you just speak to the overarching um, concept of how Israel does change from mm-hmm. the beginning, uh, you know, inception of these writings to to the end as we come to. Uh, the life of Christ, that whole time period that's there. Obviously, there's a whole lot that goes on there with, um, you know, first and second temple Judaism, um, all all that stuff. Can you talk yeah. about the overarching narrative yeah. there, how they change? Yeah, sure. I think, I mean, the big point is that, like you're saying, as as times change, your connection to God and and how you would explain God and how you would relate to God actually changes. And I think. In our own lives, we can attest to that. We're not the same that we were 10 or 20 or 30 or 40, depending on our age. You know, I'm not the same I was today as I was 20 years ago. I think about God differently. Why? Because stuff has happened in my life, and I've just had to process reality. 
And we see that at work in the Bible as well. When you have, you know, earlier, uh, you know, again, this is can be controversial for some, but probably it wasn't until sometime after the time of David that the Bible started to get written down somewhat seriously. And they weren't even thinking about writing a Bible. Like, we're going to write a Bible for Christians in 3,000 years. They were, <laughs> they were recording, you know, their own struggles with monarchy and things like that. And, you know, when they're in the land and struggling, the Bible has a certain tone, but then they go into exile, which is, like, probably the most dramatic event in Israelite history, where they leave the land and, you know, they're not, they don't have the temple anymore, they don't have prophets really running around, they don't have a king. All the things that mark them off as being God's people, in, at peace with God, those things are gone, and that caused a lot of soul searching and a lot of way of thinking differently about God. And and basically, God's not in our hip pocket. Perhaps God is bigger than we gave God credit for. And all those things, you know, go into our Bible. There are parts of the Bible that are clearly written in light of this exile, which is in the 6th century B.C. and after, you know. So um, the circumstances affect how we respond. And, you know, I really I think it's important to talk about the crisis of the exile, the spiritual crisis, which, and anybody who's ever been in a spiritual crisis understands this, that that's when you start taking stock of, like, okay, what do I actually believe and why do I believe it? Mm. We actually see that at work in the Bible. We have biblical writers who are walking in front of us basically asking that question and even taking older stories or older ideas and to having a very different take on it. And I think that's, you know, I, I think that's a, not a problem. That's so baked into the pages of the Bible. And it's, it's actually it's a beautiful thing because the Bible is reflecting our own lives in that sense or we're reflecting it, in that we also change, you know, um, you know, just, you know, again, I, I'm not sure how this is going to be received, but just a common example of, of uh, you know, parents who have very clear ideas about human sexuality until one of their kids comes out, and then they say, maybe I need, maybe the problem is how I think, maybe I need to change, right, so that's, that that's a common thing, and the Bible's full of stuff like that. Yeah, li- life experience for sure changes our perspective yeah. on everything. Having having children, yes, uh, change my perspective on God. When scripture, yeah. when New Testament scripture talks about, and even Old Testament, but when Jesus introduces uh, God as our Father mm-hmm. and teaches us how to pray, our Father, and then I look for the first time at this little baby, and right. I know how I feel about her. It it blew my mind, man, for mm-hmm. sure. So. I appreciate that answer. Uh, that life um, life changes our perspective on things if we allow it to. Um, and, and because God is big, is not yeah. limited to our little thoughts. It's you know these big momentous times in our lives. It can actually awaken you to something bigger than that. You know, and and um, I think the Old Testament. It's not just the New Testament does that. Within the Old Testament, that's happening quite a bit. You know, just later times makes people think. Maybe God's not like what we thought God was like. Right. And where, whoever compiled the Bible kept all those parts. They didn't just yeah. keep the later parts. They kept everything because that's part of the journey, you know, which I think sure. is powerful. Is there a check and balance in, uh, made in there, too, that, okay, our life experience changes things. And so our life experience right now says we're exiles. 
Um, but this is not something that is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Just, just because life has brought me to this place doesn't mean that it's right. Doesn't mean that this is how it's supposed to be. Uh, are there, are there things? Cause there's a lot of people that are struggling with depression right now. There's a lot of people that are struggling because of oh, yeah. fear and anxiety. Um, so we don't want to just accept our reality for what it is just because this is the way that life has happened to us. What, what do we see? Uh, how do we see people overcome those things in scripture? Well, I mean, it is very, uh, not everything is good. Right. But it, it is what it is now. That doesn't mean it's always going to be this way, but yeah. it is the way it is now. And again, I mean, depression is a tricky thing because that's, that's clinical and that yes. has very serious implications very different than somebody just losing his job. Yes. Right? Even though people get depressed from that too. But I, you know what I mean? It's just, yes. I think it's difficult. I don't want to mess with it because it's a very, very serious thing. Um, but I think part of it is understanding that wherever we are, the presence of God is there with us. Mm-hmm. And we're going to perceive that presence maybe differently because of these experiences. And some of those difficult experiences wind up becoming some of the greatest gifts that we experience in our lives because it gets us out of our sense of thinking we can control God. Yeah. Right Now, that doesn't mean, I'm so glad I went through that long period of depression or something. That's, it's not that. It's just something happens from that because God's a part of that as well. Right? Um, so yeah, I mean it's I'm I'm not really good at like how to get out of things. You know, I just sort of like leave it as it is, but realizing that if it's something really bad, that's actually suffering. Isn't that great? No, no, no. I'm not saying it's great. It is actual suffering, but it is the way it is right now. And and part of the the Christian walk is to not accept it and roll over like, oh well, you know, God's will, you know, God is doing this. God may be doing nothing to you at all. It may just be something that's happening to you, but maybe God's there anyway. Yeah. And something that can, there's some redemptive purpose there, like something can be gained from it. That's very good. No, I appreciate that answer very much. Um, I do want to shift gears uh, and still talk about the Old Testament just for a second, but hopefully bring us into the new with this question. Um, you talk a lot about the Old Testament, especially I've heard you talk a lot about Second Temple uh, Judaism. Uh, how significant is it for us to try to understand what's going on there in order for us to understand what Jesus is talking about and what's going on oh, yeah. in Jesus' day? You mean like everyday people, right? Like just yeah. people that are church and stuff like this. Well, I think, um, I actually think it's pretty important. <laughs> you know, I, hate to yeah. put a, I hate to put a burden on people, but um, is is it essential? No, it's not essential. Plenty of pe- people live their lives without ever thinking about it. But rather than giving it a label like Second Temple Judaism, I'd rather just think it's important to understand something of maybe Jesus' background and his context. Few people would say that's a bad idea, right? The thing is that part of that context includes a tradition, a history behind it. And, you know, Jesus or Paul didn't just start talking out of a context, they're a part of a world where a lot of things have happened, they knew they happened, and that shapes them. It's, it would be sort of like, talk about the American experience, but don't talk about the Civil War, because you're not living during that time. Yeah, I know that, but it is part of the American experience, and a lot of things happen there, especially racially, that are still being felt today. So you can't, you can't really understand... 
Okay, you can't understand Black Lives Matter without a context of what happened, right? You, you can't understand Martin Luther King Jr. without a context of things that have happened. So that's important, I think, you know, to, to understand that if you have an interest that is in any way historical, which I think most people actually do, they're actually interested in who are Pharisees and why would Jesus say that, you know? Yeah. So um, I, I think it is important. I want to say, though, that it's not essential because I think that um, plenty of people in the history of Christianity have lived their whole lives never thinking about this stuff, and that's fine, too. Um, and their, their reading of the Bible is much more oriented toward, like, an immediate spiritual encouragement where they're going to take words off the page and sort of connect with them, and there's nothing wrong with that. Very good. You know, we are living in sort of a historical time, though. We're very historically conscious in the West. And if you're historically conscious, historical questions do come up when you read the Bible. They're inevitable. They're almost from the first words they come up. In that sense, yeah, I think knowing something about the history of Jesus is important, and not just jumping from, from like, Jesus and Paul, like, back to Isaiah a few hundred years, but knowing that a lot of stuff happened in between that actually shaped how Jesus and Paul were thinking and, and, and interacting at that moment. Is there easily accessible uh, things no. outside of Scripture that can can get us uh, an overview of that? I mean, is it oh, gosh. Is, that, is that a thing? <laughs> um, not. I mean, no. I mean, it'd be nice, wouldn't it, to have something like that? You I, should I know write. You should I write should, one, Pete. I should. Um, I mean, I touch on it a little bit in some of the books, but not not really systematically. But there are um, there are good introductions to the Bible out there that treat like introductions like for college students, for example, that treat the that what they call the intertestamental period or the second temple period. Second temple because the first temple was destroyed in 586 BC. The second one was built in 516. That one was the one the Romans destroyed in the year 70s, like almost 600 years later. That whole period is a very important period, the Second Temple period. Right. But there are books out there that talk about that. Um, we're using a book now at Eastern. Uh, the guy's last name is Sumney. What's his first name? Hold on. I should know this. I had signed it. Uh, Maybe oh, yeah, the cat knows. Jerry Sumney put up by Fortress, Fortress Press called The Bible and Introduction. Very, very readable for, like, everyday normal people. And, but he sort of really gets into the, the whole trajectory from, like, you know, Genesis all the way through, and he treats that period in the middle. And all you need is a few pages to sort of feel why it might be important. You don't have to study it the rest of your life. But, you right. know, it, the, that resource is there. But it, it's actually it's a really good question. Like, I can't think of, like, a nice book to hand somebody. No, I really appreciate your answer. Does... Um primarily Caucasian people's reading of Jesus out of his Middle Eastern context have any, well, I think it does, but is it, in your opinion, does it have a leading question? Does it it have any, it is a leading question, but (laughs) I'm, I'm asking so I can do it. Does it have any negative consequences on theology? (laughs) Not at all. Jesus was as white as you and I were. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a huge question that all has to do with, you know, the history of racism and white privilege and white nationalism in the church. And that's not a hard thing to see. You know, the supporting of slavery, turning a blind eye to a lynching culture and things like that. So 
Yeah, I think if you see Jesus as representing you, especially a white person who is part of the dominant culture, you're going to read a Jesus who's not really connected with the margins. Mm. And um, if there's anything that I see in the New Testament is Jesus sort of being connected with the margins. So, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's been a deadly combination, and it's not a good one. So. Okay, I have another question for you just about Jesus. Um, there's been, like, within, within Christian scholarship, there's, and not even just Christian, but just historical scholarship, the discussion of the historical Jesus versus Jesus of the Gospels. Yeah. Obviously, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who walked and talked, but how do the Gospels portray him, and, and what is all that in there? And then, obviously, as a person of faith, you know, Jesus is... I mean, Jesus is it. Jesus is the Savior, you know. It, so it's like w- how we discuss these things really matters a ton. Um, you know, what is your opinion in terms of the historical Jesus versus Jesus of the Gospels? How do we balance those two things? Well, yeah, I think they're not the same thing, but I wouldn't say verses, right? And that's again, that's 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 the sort of a common way of thinking. Like it's one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The fact is that we have four portraits of Jesus. And historically, like in the second century, people tried cramming that together into one big story, and they realized it didn't work because they're so different. So that's why we had the gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, etc. And it's important to respect those differences. And I think the value of those differences is that they're bearing witness to a historical person, but they're also adapting that experience for different communities of faith. Mm. So to me, that's not an adversarial relationship. What we're seeing is the, the, the. Um, I mean, it, not adapting, but it, it's more just this is what this Christ story means to this community of faith, whether it's Matthews or Marks or Luke's or Johns. That is extremely valuable for the church to understand because that's what we've been doing ever since. Every person, every community, and every time and place is sort of trying to answer that question of who this living Christ is for us today. And that's why it's really nice to see these differences in the Gospels. And they're not all saying exactly the same thing, yeah. because that's modeling something for us, right? So, But I do think there's a difference. Yeah, I mean, no one's taking notes when Jesus is talking, right? Mm. Uh, you know that meme on Facebook where Jesus is sitting, like, on the Sermon on the Mount? He's sitting on a rock talking to the people, and he says, okay, now just pay close attention here, folks. I don't want, like, four versions of this running around out there. Right? So, <laughs> but it's not like that. So you have, you know, the story of Jesus told differently. Like, Mark and John don't bother with the birth story. Matthew and Luke have one, and they differ pretty significantly. You know, the resurrection accounts differ, because no one's, like, thinking we have to preserve this perfectly. The, the lived effect of Jesus in these gospel stories. And you, you don't have one with the other. So you don't, you don't have the four versions without a historical connection because they are really very similar in many respects. But you don't have that historical recollection in just one version. We have four gospels. So right. somehow there's a way to you have to bring those together not like, like what we can do is cram these two ideas together. Just let them feed off of each other as good things, not bad things. Very good. And I was not going to ask you another Old Testament question, but you've stirred my mind up, so I have to ask. 
Um, and you've taken a whole podcast for this, and so I encourage people to, maybe we can put that in the show notes uh, on the Bible for normal people, about how the Old Testament came together. And I never, um, I'm, uh, I'm trying to, I'm an, I'm an uneducated clown is what I need to say. Um, <laughs> and I'd never heard uh, heard you talk about the different, so- anybody talk about the different sources uh, being put together to make up the Old Testament. Can you give us like a brief synopsis of how, why we have the Old Testament that we have in our hand and not, not Enoch and not a lot of other things? <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's um, a brief synopsis of the entire history of yeah, please. thought about the Bible. Really, it's pretty it's much three, three minutes, go. <laughs> I, I did a couple of different podcasts on different issues about compiling the Bible together. And, um, what I mean, in a nutshell, what biblical scholars have done for a few hundred years, they've just noticed different voices in the Bible. And the different voices, um, they've tried to date those. Like, when were they written? And some of that has to do with not just sort of like what they're saying. Like, okay, if there's a psalm that assumes that the Babylonian exile has happened, it's probably written after the Babylonian exile. Right. The thing is that you have hints of that in the Pentateuch also, in Genesis, Exodus, etc. You have... You have clear hints that the conquest of the land has already taken place. Um, and, you know, such a clear indication about an exile that most people think, okay, this is probably written in hindsight. The, the exile is in the rearview mirror. So those things come together to sort of suggest theories, and they differ. You know, different scholars have different opinions. But, like, sort of the slow bringing together of what we call the Bible over time and the end of that process probably wasn't until after the Babylonian exile, because this is a time when, okay, you're out of the land. You're, you got God's presence is sort of like a sketchy thing because God's associated with the temple, which was destroyed, and with a monarchy and with the prophets who are speaking God's word to the people. And you don't have those things anymore, but what you do have is the words of the past. You do have the prophets of the past. So these books are starting to be collected and maybe added to and things like that, because that then represents how God can continue speaking to a community that doesn't have a temple, that doesn't have prophets, that doesn't have a monarchy. And the Bible was sort of born out of that need, actually. It wasn't, it's not an abstraction. It's not an, an academic exercise. It's born out of a need for God to continue speaking at a time when God's voice is functionally absent. Which is why the Bible keeps hanging on, by the way. You know, because nobody has conversations with God like, you know, an Abraham or a Moses or something. If they do, you think you're, they're crazy and you lock them up. We, we don't hear God's voice that way. We hear it through this scripture and through the ancient stories, and we apply them to ourselves. Well, Pat Robertson does, but... Um, yeah, that's okay. anyways, <laughs> um, in, in our, in our current times, uh, and it, it started happening, well, for me, it started happening when I was, uh, early teens and left behind stuff came out and all mm-hmm. that. So many people that have, you know, quote, cracked the code of revelation and reading ourselves into the story. Um, how do you, uh, how do you see, uh, books of apocalyptic nature in scripture, um, is it healthy to read ourselves into those? 
Is it good for us to think that we're we're part of that story right now? Um, maybe, but we shouldn't always put ourselves on the side of the winners. Maybe we mm. should be on the side of the losers. You know, um, yeah. I mean, the whole apocalyptic mentality. You know, it's black and white. There, there, there's good and there's evil, and be on the good side. And the evil people look like that. There's been a tendency throughout church history, and including very much today in our political climate in America, where you have the God people over here and then the not God people over there. That's a very apocalyptic mentality. And if you don't get it right, it threatens all of civilization. Right. That's an apocalyptic notion. That's that's as old as the dinosaurs, that, that kind of way of thinking. Yeah. So I don't I don't think it's necessarily a good thing to do, but here's the thing. Apocalyptic is a really good thing when you're in persecution. I mean, real persecution, not like... Like when there's no toilet paper on the shelves when you go to the store. Exactly. <laughs> and not like, um, you know, feeling like, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, in, in American Christianity, you know, you feel persecuted if somebody doesn't like the way you pray. I'm persecuted for my faith. No, you're not. You don't know the meaning of the word. It's, it's a free country, and people can sort of have opinions on what they think you're doing, and they don't like it, and that's fine. And you don't have to have laws supporting Christianity in a nation that doesn't have a state religion, right? Yep. So, And that's not persecution, right? That's not persecution. Persecution is like when ISIS invades your town. And there are two kinds of people in the world. <laughs> the evil people or the people who are trying to survive. And God's on the side of those people who are persecuted. I think there's always a place for apocalyptic that's legitimate. It's just like, it's a part of the biblical fabric, and so people jump on it, and they apply it to themselves for very weird reasons. But it's not hard to do, because it's not just the book of Revelation. I mean, people have called, I agree with this, the New Testament is basically an example of Jewish apocalypticism. It's a very Jewish story. It's Jesus, yeah, but it's not, it's not Christian. That's a little later. It's a Jewish story centered around Jesus. And, you know, Paul and others are like, the end's coming soon. <laughs> you know, what side do you want to be on, right? Yeah. And the fact is that the end didn't come soon. <clears throat> it's 2,000 years later. And the question is, how do we today, as responsible Bible readers, take seriously that apocalyptic current of the New Testament while also saying, yeah, some of this may not really be appropriate for how we think today, because maybe we're not living in that apocalyptic moment. Maybe so with COVID-19 we are, I don't know, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, you know, we're not, no one is actually really thinking about the end of the age on a, on a regular basis. I, I know very few Christians who think that actually, really, everything's going to come to an end. Right, I'm in King City. Maybe I need to get out. You need more. to come to the Midwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. That's going to say. Maybe I, I'm, I have a sheltered existence. <laughs> so, so, so it's important then. If I if I heard you right, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's important when we're reading things, say Revelation or even the New Testament as a whole, that we more in Rome than the New Jerusalem. It's important to understand that we're more like the Romans than right. The right. I mean, when when we think, and, and many others, you know, Brian Zonda is one person we mentioned. You mentioned earlier, and uh, before we went on recording, and and others who, and I agree with them, that 
America is more the Rome or Babylon yes. than, than the chosen people, right? right. Because we participate in the economic war machine, yep. which is very much a part of the book of Revelation. And the whole point is that you, you worship and follow the slain lamb of God, the humbled, humiliated slain lamb of God, rather than the power structure. And when Christians align themselves with the power structure, that's always, hear me, always, not sometimes, always a problem. Eventually it becomes a major, and people get hurt as a result of that. And I think that's, if I may wax eloquent here on this for a moment, I do think that's a big problem in American political scene with Christians, real Christians, who mistake the power of the empire with the paradoxical power of the cross it's power through humiliation and suffering it's not power through well taking power grabbing for power that's just wrong you know I just I, I don't to me that's the one of the most quizzical things that even when you sort of point it out to people they don't see it and I don't I simply I have I have trouble understanding that if that's not an intellectual issue that's an emotional issue at that point they're they're they're, they're not hearing something that I think is really Bible 101. Yeah. Hmm. Well, fortunately, during the 2020 election season, there's no Christians pandering to any kind of political power. That's not, just not, that not going on at all. Haven't we? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot. And the thing is, you know, I, I, um, it's, it's what happens when you have that civil religion, they call it, the, the, the amalgamation of the two of, of faith of religion and, and, um, and politics, and you know, I, the, sometimes you know the 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 proof texting deals mm-hmm. with much of the Old Testament, really, because you have a monarchy, you have a theocracy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I just want to tell people, how did that work out? Right. It was abysmal. It didn't. It never worked. Saul was a disaster. David was great for about four chapters, and then he sees Bathsheba <laughs> on the roof, and that's the end of that. Solomon starts off wise, and then he has, you know, all these wives and, 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 and idols in the land. There's Kingship is an unmitigated, long story of disaster. So if you ask the question, what does God think of kingship in the Bible, it's, there are moments where it seems like it's okay, but for the most part, it's very, very negative. And you know, Walter Brueggemann, who's, you know, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, uh, he, he really is very good at articulating how with the monarchy, Israel became Egypt. That's the problem, because Solomon enslaved his own people, as the story goes, uh, to build the stuff that he needed to have, a palace, an army, cooks, people working in the court. He, they had, he had to conscript people and force them to do things, because otherwise the administration doesn't work. Yeah. Kingship requires bureaucracy. And bureaucracy doesn't work well with God. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we forget that. We, we want to recreate. Again, the thing is, this is not negative Old Testament, because I, that's my degree is in that. I love the Old Testament. But the appeals on the part of the religious right tend to be to the Old Testament, because here you have a theocracy. Yeah. Right? You, don't, you can't really build that machine on Jesus' back, or Paul's back, for that matter. Right. Or the book of Revelation's back. You've got to go to places where kingship is talked about, and then that sort of just morphed into like a democratic society where we don't actually have a king, you know. <laughs> but this is part, don't get me started on this, but you already did. But, no, you know, really on the East Coast where I live, you, there are towns called Bethlehem, New Canaan, 
You know, the East Coast is full of little biblical-based, you know, towns, because that's what happened when people came here. You know, this was the new Israel. Yeah. And we're repopulating it. We're going to get rid of the natives, yeah. just like the Canaanites, the natives, were gotten rid of, you know, all that kind of racist language. And, um, and the attempt was to recreate the... Um, recreate a, a, a Christian empire in America. And that hasn't worked. And we're still reeling from that now in the political mindset today. Yeah. I just have one last question for you. It's kind of been sitting in the back of my mind through all this is, and I, I agree with everything you said. I just know we have a good friend that would probably ask something similar to this. And so I want to ask it because I know he's a listener. You know, obviously, the view of God changes throughout the Old Testament. I think that's undeniable, right? Um, and even as we talk about, there's different viewpoints of Jesus, you know. And someone out there would maybe accuse you of not taking the Bible seriously enough. Obviously, we don't believe that, but somebody out there might accuse you of that. And so then they would ask you, well, what the, what do you face your what do you base your faith off of? Then, like, what what do you base your relationship with God off of? If in their eyes, if they're saying you can't trust the Bible. And therefore, you can't trust Jesus, you know, and all this stuff. How? Do, what would you say to uh, people that come at you like that? Um, I, I mean, in all seriousness, it would depend on who it is. Like right. if I knew them well or didn't know them well, if they were friends or if there are people who are just hostile. Right. I tend not to engage people who are um, who are of ill will. Right. But there's no reason to debate this. It's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But. I mean, I would begin by just talking about what do you mean by trust the Bible? And do you think we're supposed to trust the Bible or God primarily? And how do those two things work together? Um, it's, really, it's, 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 it's not a matter of not trusting the Bible. It's trying to understand how it works. Yeah. So do I trust the Bible? Do I trust that verse over there? Do I trust it on the verse level? Because there are other verses over here that have a different perspective, or do I trust it in the overarching story that it's trying to tell, that at the end of it leaves us in a place where I think we have no choice but to take that responsibility to figure out what it means, always engaging the tradition, always engaging community, but to try to figure out what it means to follow God and what that looks like. Every generation has a responsibility. And to expect the Bible to do the heavy lifting for us, or the soul lifting for us, I mean, I have to say, I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of just the nature of biblical literature. It's too diverse. That's why you can always find a verse to support what you want. And even if you can't find a verse that supports it, you can find one that you can make to support your point of view, right? That's always there. And... That's why proof texting is useless. We need a different way of looking at the Bible entirely that doesn't make, let us fall into that trap, where ironically we can actually be subject to the biblical story at that point. And not that doesn't happen by proof texting. We're actually in complete control when we proof text. We don't realize that, but we're in complete control because we're finding the verses or we're interpreting verses quickly in a way that sort of satisfy, satisfies us psychologically. And that's... I don't think that is a respect of Scripture. I don't think it's a respect of God. I don't think it's a respect of the Christian faith. Excellent. Thank you for that answer. Hey, sure. I got to ask you one more. Th- I got to ask you one more thing. Yeah. What does prayerfully woke mean to you? I have no idea. 
the heck out of that dumb title is that for a podcast anyway? <laughs> I'm sorry, the listeners are like freaking out right now, but no, we were we were jabbing about this earlier. So, what does prayerfully woke to me? I think I don't know what it means to me. I'm trying to think of what it means to you. Like, why would you call a podcast prayerfully woke? But I think it's about coming to a different place of understanding of yourself and of God in the world and of your relationship to God and your relationship in the world that's driven by an intimacy with God and not just having better arguments. Yeah. I that's, like that a lot. Is that, did I do that well? Is that right? That was really good. Yeah, we're probably going to get ready to change all our social media account titles right now. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was good. Yeah, very right, good. So prayerfully woke. Woke is a good thing. Yeah, but it's prayerfully woke. Yeah, we want to be prayerfully woke, not just you know we don't want to be uh, clickbait crazy woke. We want to be prayerfully woke. We want to be engaged in what's going on in the culture in a prayerful way. Right, right. Hey, Doctor Pete, thank you so much for giving us your time today. We appreciate you, listeners. Thank you for uh, listening, and please do go check out uh, Pete's uh, works that we mentioned before this uh, episode began. And also check out the Bible for Normal People. They drop about every single Monday, yeah. uh, except for in between seasons, of course. And so check out that podcast. It's awesome stuff. Thank you, Pete, for joining us. God bless you, and peace. Peace. Thanks. Appreciate it. See ya. Got it. Bye.